when you look at most of the foods that we're eating, they're the same ones that have made us fat and sick. Why are we doing health in general? Like I said at the beginning, it's, it's really a survival strategy. Cruising toward longevity, that's really a way that you can navigate through life. Are we our bodies or are we something more? And and does that something more have power over our bodies to help them heal? If you, you know, just do a few things kind of the right way and that's incredible how our bodies respond. It's a meaningful thing that's come out of social media. Well, it's for connecting with people. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I was so honored to have this conversation with Abel James. He is a figure in the whole health movement. His show has been the number one health podcast. He's a legend in the whole paleo world. And he's just one of the nicest people I think I have ever met in my entire life. And we didn't just discuss diet. We got into so many fun topics, language, poetry, even things like censorship and social media. I really, really think you guys will enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash wild diet. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be two giveaways for this episode. Number one, we'll be doing a giveaway on my Instagram, so check out that post to win a signed copy of Abel's book. And then second, there will be a giveaway in my Facebook group, that's IF Biohackers, intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. A big part of Abel's book is finding out the foods that work for you. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful, fabulous conversation with Abel James. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly thrilled, honored, excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with truly a legend in the whole holistic health. I'm going to put a lot of adjectives, but paleo, keto, fat burning, diet, that whole world. This man is a legend. He is the host of the award-winning top iTunes show. It's even been the number one health podcast on iTunes, and that is the Fat Burning Man Show. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of a fabulous book called The Wild Diet, Get Back to Your Roots, Burn Fat, and Drop Up to 20 Pounds in 40 Days. He is also a musician. He's an online creator, and he has a new book of a different topic called Designer Babies Still Get Scabies, a small book of mostly silly poetry based on true stories, mostly. Well, I'm just going to say who I am here with. I am here with Abel James, a man who pretty much needs no introduction. But Abel, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, thank you so much for having me and that wonderful introduction. Well, I will say, so I had obviously been listening to your shows and I was really familiar with The Wild Diet, but then you sent me your poetry book and I didn't anticipate this, but I feel like I got like a really good sense. Well, I mean, I I don't know you that well, but I, I learned a lot about you through reading your poetry, which by the way was hysterical, but you had a lot to say through it. So I'm actually really excited in this conversation. I feel like it's going to go a way I probably didn't 
initially anticipate when we first connected, just because I have a lot of things I want to ask you about. So I'm excited. Good. Those are the best types of conversations. Awesome. So with that in mind, though, I'm still going to start with a very basic question. And most of my audience is likely very familiar with your work. But for those who are not, and for those who might not know about your own personal story, could you tell listeners just a little bit about your personal story and what led you to first the whole fat burning man thing, and then where you are, I guess, currently with all of that? Well, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and at a young age, I became allergic to almost every antibiotic out there. And my mom, who was a nurse at the time in traditional Western medicine, didn't know what to do with me and and my younger brother, who the same thing happened to. We got really sick when we were infants, and basically were pumped full of all these different drugs. To this day, I still can't, you know, come near a lot of them. So for a long time, health has kind of been a survival strategy to some degree because I knew that if I got sick, it could get really bad. So I kind of went through life. My mom went into holistic medicine, started her own practice, did the speaking circuit, wrote a few books about how to incorporate herbs into clinical practice. And so I was kind of raised in this hippy-dippy mom going out in the woods making tinctures and bombs type world in New Hampshire. And then, of course, being you know a type A go-getter personality, which will probably sound to familiar to you and a lot of your listeners. I wanted to prove that I was better than that. You know, after I went to college and for the first time in my life, I had really good health insurance with my job that I got. So I wanted to use that insurance as much as I possibly could. And so I was going in every two weeks and testing urine and blood and learning how to read the charts and and trying to prevent heart disease and high blood pressure and other things that have run in, in the family. And so with this doctor, Basically, by following his advice for 18 months, <laughs> and, and this isn't a direct result, there were other factors at play, but I put on 25, 30 pounds, I had high triglycerides. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was middle-aged, even though I was in early 20s, not even mid-20s at that point. And so I was kind of falling apart. I lost everything in an apartment fire, and so I had like nothing material to my name. And when I went through that, I'm like, what can I, and I was at rock bottom, you know, like, what can I do that's under my control? And after following what appeared to be advice that was not working from a health perspective, my face was fat and puffy. I was clearly low on on a variety of different vitamins and minerals. And I'd been eating, you know, as low fat as I possibly could, starving myself to some degree, but putting weight on, even though I was still running, you know, 30 plus miles a week. And so I, I got mad enough. When I kind of hit that rock bottom that I put all my energy into researching, okay, how, how do some people get down to 3.5% body fat? How do some people in their 60s still compete like Olympians? You know what I mean? And, and I really put my thinking cap on and my nose into the books for a few years there. And once I learned everything that I did, that you know what my doctor had been telling me was in some ways resulting in me being less healthy than my peers because I was trying harder to be healthy. (laughs) That just infuriated me so much that, you know, once I started following advice that worked and and foundational principles of health that really honor nature instead of trying to trick it in some way, all of a sudden I got the the body that I wanted, my athleticism back. I I was feeling great. And I felt like someone who should in their mid twenties. And I just wanted to do something with that. And I didn't want to work some frivolous job or one that was just after money or something like that. So I, so I did everything that I could to try to be a part of 
you know, spreading alternative ideas, which shouldn't be alternative because they're so foundational to our health. I love that so much. Oh my goodness. You sound just like me with getting really excited about the health insurance <laughs> and all the testing. I know it's, it's like whenever I'm picking my plan, even still each year, I'm like, okay, <laughs> which plan is going to let me do the most testing, the most, like all the stuff that I want to do. So, okay. I love that so much. So originally you were on the, like you said, this low fat diet, was it whole foods based at all? Or was it just like low fat? Yeah, it was. Never in my life have I been like a soda drinker or someone who goes out and gets junk food with some rare exceptions, but I'm not someone who goes and gets like a six pack of soda or goes to fast food on a regular basis. That's, that's just never been true. I was always trying to be healthy, but I was, you know, drinking a lot of food that didn't appear to be processed, like orange juice with pulp in the morning. Pulp, for whatever reason, made me think it was less processed. <laughs> And so it would be things like that, where it's like, I was going for the whole wheat bread, not the white bread, because whole wheat is healthy, but not necessarily for the truly hippy dippy sprouted sourdoughs and really old school stuff where there are traditional ways of going about this. Okay, gotcha. Because one of the things that I love that you talk about in the wild diet is, you know, you talked about how you had a new realization of food and you finally were able to lose the weight without the previous restriction that you had. So now the, the wild diet, like as you quote, prescribe it now for listeners who aren't familiar, what ended up being the basic tenets of that? Is it a high fat, like keto diet? Do macros matter? Is it the demonization of things like wheat and soy? And what ultimately ended up being the key? Is it one thing? Is it multiple things? I'm not sure that it's one thing. There are definitely a combination of things, but it's what I heard repeated throughout literature that I read for the past, you know, 100 years or in medical journals sometimes or in old wives tales other times, you know, or just traditional knowledge. I think there are foundational principles like sticking to whole foods in the true sense of the word and honoring nature, like I said before, instead of trying to work against it and also valuing the, the idea that we're an ecosystem, each one of us, you know, our bodies are made up of bacteria, viruses, our gut microbiome is a circus and that we're just only starting to understand that, that really in many ways drives our health. And so it's really by treating the body with respect that we, we start to make progress. And, and, and I'll just share one quick story from the book. I, I was very fortunately able to write this book when I was traveling around the world to some cultures that were very foreign to us at the time being Westerners, but, you know, being in Indonesia and in Thailand and looking at the portion sizes, there's, there's one quick story that I'll summarize this, this one friend that we made, I believe it was in Bali. Basically, I, I asked him like, why do you think Americans are so overweight compared to people in, in your culture where you're from or, or people who you've come across? And he'd been someone who also had, had come to the States and then come back. And so he had some experience on both sides. And he said, well, here, we might have a quarter of chicken, a little bit of rice and, and, you know, a handful of veggies that'll feed a whole family. In America, you eat a whole bucket of chicken yourself. <laughs> and I, I can't really think of a better way of summing up some of the glaring problems, which are just, we're totally out of alignment with where we came from. Yeah, 100%. Like one of the things you talk about in the book and it's something that I'm really fascinated by, and it's because it is so nonchalantly dismissed by 
people who I perceive to be really brilliant GMOs. <laughs> like you talk about those in the book. And I'm just really fascinated by them because I do wonder the extent of the effect that they can have on our body, especially things like the gut microbiome and all of that. What are your current thoughts on GMOs? Well, philosophically speaking, they weren't created to improve our health. And that's not really debatable. I mean, if you look at the way that a lot of this technology develops, it's, it's more following the bottom line. Not that I'm anti-capitalism in any way. That's, that's definitely not my point. But when you look at most of the foods that we're eating, most of the foods that are subsidized, they're the same ones that, made us, that have made us fat and sick many times over, over the decades. And also, if you look at just following corporate interests or government regulations, like how long were we eating margarine thinking it was healthier than, than butter? And how upside down has the food pyramid been for how many decades until we start to take more responsibility ourselves to try to understand, you know, who has our best interests in mind? And so as far as GMOs go, genetically modified organisms, there is, and if you read my book, Designer Babies Still Get Scabies, this is one of the main, you know, kind of themes behind it, is when we try to outsmart nature, we get ourselves into trouble. But we get into trouble before we realize it, b- before we publicly acknowledge it, or before anyone ever fesses up, which they never do. You know, the corporate interests and, and the government never seem to, to fess up to the horrible atrocities of killing children, giving people cancer, disease, you know, just to, the toxins running rampant from the runoff of these giant GMO monocrops is not in any way in, in our best interest. Now, could we tinker with nature using science to improve outcomes and to improve our lives? I believe we could, but the problem is you need to have 110% trust in the people who are doing that and in the process, if you're going to follow that path. And I, for one, do not have a small amount of that trust in most of the people and and organizations who are in power right now, driving GMOs, driving monocrops. And if you just look around at the state of our health, you know, 73% of people I just read are overweight or obese in America. And that is so obscene of a problem that I think we just can't look around and be like, hey, guys, we got it all figured out. Let's keep following the science, quote unquote. Yeah, 100%. Because like, if you think about it, you know, we have all of these autoimmune conditions today. And you were even talking about, you know, when you were growing up and you were basically reacting to everything. And I feel like what's, you know, going on a lot there is our immune system is reacting to the things that we're putting into our body. And so when it comes to food, I can see how, especially with things like GMOs, where the plant is like genetically changed to, you know, perhaps have more natural pesticide potential or like things are changed in it to make it more resilient, whatever it may be. There's so much more potential for our immune system to just not accept that. Yeah. And one example that I, that I share in the book, which is kind of a caricature of this whole thing is just, you know, with, with GMOs, BT corn is essentially a a process that starts when you consume it, it starts manufacturing the pesticide in your gut. And if you look at how old margarine is, if you look at how old GMOs are, I want them to be proven 100% for safety and for health. 
before we start producing <laughs> pesticides in our own gut, which that's only a side effect because it's, it's designed to do that inside the guts of the insects that eat it, that destroy the crops. The problem is when you eat that corn, the same thing happens. Or, you know, when you eat those different derivatives of corn, which, which just wind up in almost all of our foods and a lot of the animal feed as well. Animals shouldn't be eating this and you shouldn't be eating animals that eat this either. Yeah, the note I have written down from that section in your book is you said, I mean, basically it makes the stomachs of the bugs explode, which is like very concerning. Or even something like lab-grown meat, for example, I feel like it would have to be so perfect. Your immune system would have to accept it as meat. I feel like if there was something just slightly off, your body might be questioning, what is this substance? But also, why? You know, <laughs> like... Last I checked, a grass-fed steak or chicken parmesan all tasted great. Like, why do we need all of these manufactured, monkeyed with ridiculous Franken foods in order to survive? We never have before. And I don't think that we need to rely on these unproven technologies, which are very damaging to, to life in general and health of people and, and the earth overall. We don't need any of these things to survive. There are far better methods, I believe which are, you know, more focused on regenerative agriculture, on, you know, growing an entire ecosystem in your farm instead of just one crop. Right now, we're just doing things so wrong that we can't keep doing them more wrong in order to progress, if that makes sense. I think the travesty of it is that, because you, you asked why, why would we possibly need things like lab-grown meat? I think so many people perceive that as being the most sustainable thing or the most moral thing when, I don't know, I just recently interviewed Rob Wolf for his book, Sacred Cow. And I love him and I love his work. And that book really opened my eyes into like how much I think we just have it wrong. Because like, I think it seems for people shopping at the, at the store, oh, if I buy plant-based or like, you know, a plant alternative to meat, then that's what's most sustainable. And that's what's supporting my health and the environment. And I just think that's probably not the case. Yeah. Well, I thought so too. When I was a teenager, I went really hard into being vegetarian and even vegan for a bit. But the more research that I did, and my brother now has a, a farm in upstate New York, and my dad's side of the family had a farm. When you actually look at nature, it's just not quite so simple. You know, I wish it were that if you could just stop eating meat, that the world would heal itself of all of its problems. But the, the problem is, what are you eating when you're not eating meat? And if you're eating corn, soy, or any monocrop in general, you are damaging the earth. And it doesn't matter if you're damaging it more or less than people who are you know, eating meat or, or choosing to live that life. You also could be putting your, your health at risk if you're not really on point when you go vegan or vegetarian on making sure that you're spackling the gaps in your nutrition and, and not deficient. It's, you can do it, but it, it can be a challenge. And most people who are kind of newbies to this, as I was, you know, just follow marketing more than truth. And if, if you want the truth of it, being vegetarian can absolutely be great for the earth. But being paleo, keto, Mediterranean, or, or whatever else can also be great for the earth. It's all about sourcing your foods and, and really focusing on the production point of that food as a place itself that heals the earth, or at least doesn't damage it and, and treat it as a way that's extracting resources. We live 
in the middle of nowhere in Colorado in a, in a largely agricultural valley. And if you, what was here before that was mining. And a lot of the modern farming treats the earth like mining, where you're extracting resources and you're damaging it. And even now, more than 100 years later, there are still just these runoff ponds and lakes of toxic waste from all of these, you know, operations from more than a, a century ago that are killing people, that are killing animals, that are destroying the environment. And so we need to really look farther ahead with all of this. And anyone who's trying to say that, that their lab is going to solve all of the world's problems, I think we have to look at that with a bit of scrutiny because most of our problems haven't been solved by labs. <laughs> you know, as much as I love self-testing and experimentation, biohacking and advances in technology, we really need to honor what we know works. Like <laughs> all these people who are into the fancy biohacking pills and gadgets, gadgets and all this stuff. Have you had enough water today? Did you get sun? Did you get good sleep? And did you, you know, go for a walk and strengthen your muscles? If you did all those things and you're adding the fancy stuff on, that is awesome. But if you haven't done those foundational things first and you're chasing after the magic bullet, as so many of us do, that really leads us into problems later. 100%. It's almost ironic because I'm really steeped in the quote biohacking world, obviously. I mean, this is the biohacking podcast and all the things, but actually my my perspective when I come to it is that I honestly, I wish I never had to do any quote biohacking thing ever again. Like the reason I do these things is because most of them are actually an attempt to combat the modern environment and sort of hack it to return back to the original state. So things like blue light blocking glass, it's, it's because I'm trying to combat the overexposure of light or things like infrared sauna for detox is getting you know the benefits there. And so all these things, it's like, it's because I just want to <laughs> return to my natural state of things. But I do love the things that can be learned from it. Yeah, I did a lot of those things today, by the way, and I'm standing over EMF and it's like, <laughs> I've got my tracking ring on. <laughs> I'm into it too. It's just it's very tempting to be carried away by the magic bullet, newfangled, whatever it is, technology, lab-grown meats, soylent, you know, like whatever it is. It's more about the holistic process of all of this, like you said. And, and so for me, it's like, it's so cool. It was four degrees this morning, I think. And so for me, getting out in the sun, I, I would love to, you know, in between interviews, get a few rays. But I hit the infrared light panel because that is in some ways a substitute right? That makes you feel good and you warm up and gets your, your cells and mitochondria going in the morning. And, and so that stuff is really useful and important, I think. And also the self-tracking piece is just, you don't want to turn yourself into a nutcase, which, which I can do if I get too obsessed over it. But you know, when you can track temperature, sleep, heart rate variability, heart rate in general, not just like in a snapshot, but over time, I mean, the implications of that are so incredible for your own personal health and taking responsibility for it that it can show up in awesome ways in your life. It's really, you know, for me, it's, it's easy to get carried away drinking and partying when I'm hanging out with friends or playing music or whatever. But when I'm wearing a tracking ring that shows me what it does to my heart rate the next day, woo, I'm going to lay off a little bit. Is it aura ring that you're wearing? Yeah. 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 I actually, I just interviewed the CEO, Harpreet. Oh, Harpreet? Yeah. He's so nice. Awesome. Yeah. He's great. He's so great. And it's kind of funny. You just touched on this, but I think my listeners would probably think, oh, if Melanie has one thing, it's an aura ring. I actually didn't. I just got it for the first time. And it was because of what you just said about 
I didn't want to be like overanalyzing like all the time, like like every single moment. But I've actually, the thing I love about Aura is it's, it's so, like I love the way it talks to you, like the way it phrases things. It feels like it's really trying to support what you're doing as far as like your sleep cycle. Are you an early bird or a night owl? I can go back and forth, but usually early bird. Oh, I'm so jealous. I want to be that so bad. But not if I stay up late. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like hardcore a night owl. And it's like my aura ring totally knows that. So it like never suggests that I go to bed, you know, super early. So I really love it. Okay. I have a super random theory that I want to throw by you that I just thought of sort of recently. And I would love to know your thoughts on it. It ties into, because you talked in the book about like fortification of wheat, all the, the vitamins that are added to foods, processed foods. And you talk about how utterly important like vitamins and minerals and being nourished from our food is. I'm wondering, this is so random, so please pardon the the tangent rabbit hole. Like a lot of my listeners practice intermittent fasting or they practice pretty strict whole foods, paleo type diets. And they'll often say that they get this sense where they're just never quite satisfied with the foods. And then they'll like go and eat something like conventional, like flour or cake or cookies. And then they finally feel full for the first time, like in that moment. I used to think it was because either they were like restricting. So it was like a calorie thing or it was like a stress type response. And so it was like helping with that. I'm wondering if people are just so nutrient depleted that maybe when they eat and I'm not advocating eating like flour and wheat and things like that, but I'm wondering if when people take that in like in a huge hit and process form with all of those added vitamins, if maybe it like fills up one of those depleted vitamin things. That's a really random theory. Yeah. Well, I think that's best case scenario. I do think that happens. I think that's best case scenario though. Cause when you look at the included vitamins, they're synthetic for the most part, and they're in a form that a lot of us don't absorb readily there's just not that much in it. So I think, yeah, if, if you just like pound a lot of food at once, there's a good chance that you're going to be hitting something. It could even be salt, could be calories. You know, if we go too low on it, for me, if I go too low on carbs for too long, this is why I'm not a giant fan of long-term extended keto for most people anyway. I feel run down, kind of out of juice. I don't feel like myself and hitting even just like one sweet potato later, I do feel like myself again, you know? So it could be a variety of things. It could be vitamins and minerals there. But for me, it's like, especially when you look at the flowers, the more processed it is, the more it messes me up. I don't know if it's the preservatives that they add, the dough conditioners, the aluminum. I mean, there's so much stuff there. It could even be the synthetic form of the vitamins. If your body doesn't recognize them and, and use them well, that's going to hurt you more than it helps you. But anyway, yeah, I, I think that's an interesting theory. But when we try to make these like formulated biscuits for animals, which they've done in zoos, or when we try to make these formulated biscuits with synthetic vitamins and minerals that are supposed to keep us healthy or whatever, that has never worked before. <laughs> it's never worked in the zoos. It's a horrible, I write about this in my book. It, it's, it's made gorillas and apes in general very overweight trying to eat these things that are formulated to hit all of their nutritional needs. Because we don't know what we're doing. We, you know, we want to think as formulators and scientists and humans in general that we know everything. But clearly, we do not. And, and nature in some ways does. But we need to, it's a trickier way of going about this. And I think it's important to follow our 
intuition. When I eat the more processed stuff, it tends to make me hungrier. Not just that day. Like I do kind of get that for maybe an hour or two, I'll fill up. But then after that, it's like my hunger really ramps up for the rest of that day and, and sometimes even for a few days. Actually, also in that same world, because you do have a really extensive section on mindset in the book, but you do advocate. So you have like the wild diet and the tenets of it, but then you do advocate like a, a 90-10 approach or, or free meal. Like how do people navigate finding the diet that works from them, not feeling restricted? Like what do you find with all of that? Yeah, the more dogmatic you get with this, like the more rules you create, the more rebels you create is one way that I think about it. Because that's definitely true with me. If you give me a, a fundamental principle, like if I know why I should drink water or what happens when I don't drink water and, and stay hydrated, especially living up here at 8,000 feet, you get into pro- trouble pretty quick. So I don't know. You, it, it's some amount of like following intuition but you also have to know that it's worth it for yourself to put all of these things into action. Easier said than done. You know, I'm sure for you, Melanie, and for me as well, it's like when you just do this for a while, there's a temptation to think that you need to do all of these things perfectly. And that's, that's impossible. And there is no perfect. And like for me, I would love to keep doing my runs, which are usually six or seven miles up to 10,000 feet on the mountain. But like I said, it's all iced up right now. It's, it's, you can't do that. You have to adjust your sports. You have to adjust your training. A lot of us are locked inside. You, you know, walking is illegal or whatever. So you have to make these adjustments. And with the people who I've coached over the years, I've found it's really not about coming up with all these new fancy things. It's more about trying to navigate around the crazy curveballs that life throws at you. Because it's really hard to keep up with your strength routine or your workouts when it's illegal to do that, right? It's, it's really difficult to eat well when there are no greens growing around you and, and you have no access to them. And so in many ways, I think it's important to know that life will give you the cheats. You don't have to force them. And also, it's, it's a mental health thing, too, where there are some people, especially working in the creative fields, a lot of us are very obsessive, maybe OCD, maybe bipolar, you know, but in, in many ways, psychologically, we need to be careful. And so if you try to go super hard and deprive yourself for too long, and then you fall off the wagon, right? And then you binge or uh, that up and down process is really what damages us over time. And so if you can, you know, try to treat it more of a, as, as like a cruise mode, which I think when you're doing things like intermittent fasting, it makes it a lot easier, right, to maintain or just kind of shave weight off when you want to. But if you're more cruising toward longevity, if you think about it that way, instead of these short-term gains or, or losses or whatever, that's really a way that you can navigate through life because you're going to get the cheats, you're going to get the curveballs, and you're going to get all of the setbacks and injuries too. So you're going to have to have a plan for how to navigate those. I love that so much. In a way, if you had the cheats as part of the plan, then they're just further a rule in the plan. Yeah, it gets a little weird. I I do. I like having free meals or free days or just, you know, sometimes you go on vacation. I didn't exercise in in a serious way for like two weeks. It was great, you know, but that is not going to be my day to day plan. It's important to view this, though, I think in cycles. That's how our body operates. And once you start seriously tracking 
yourself. You'll see that with my body temperature tracking that. It's so interesting. I have like three days of really low body temperature. Then it goes way up for like five days usually. Then it comes slamming back down. You know, unless I don't get enough sleep or I catch a bug or something like that, then I see the temperature start to creep up. My my heart rate and heart rate variability is compromised. And I, I lay off, I focus on the sleep. And being able to preempt all of that is, is incredibly useful. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard 
heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Yeah, I'm always really impressed by Aura. Like you said earlier, it doesn't let you get away with anything. It's like it knows. (laughs) It's like if I drink a little bit too much wine in the morning, it's like, I'm like, oh, it knows. Actually, I'm so glad you brought up the exercise though. And I'm dying to hear your experience and recommendations when it comes to all of that, because when it comes to exercise, I like to just make my life exercise. So I like, I wear weights during the day usually. So when I'm doing like housework or errands at the store, things like that, it's like turning it into a sort of muscle supporting activity, which side note I never, even when I was living in California for like 10 years, I don't see people just wearing weights around like at the grocery store. You'd think more people would do this. Especially in California, you'd think so, yeah. Yeah, but I think I've seen it. I actually don't think I've ever seen anybody. 
So when it happens, it's going to be a really exciting moment. Yeah, you can start a trend. I know, I know. I keep putting it out there. I've been putting it out there though for like years and it's still not picking up. So, um, But in any case, especially on the intermittent fasting podcast, we get so, so, so many questions about supporting different, especially like endurance type activities, marathons, things like that. Can they be done with something like intermittent fasting or do people need to, you know, fuel right? Like eat before activity. We get so many questions about how to best support, especially more intense, like either endurance type activities or like really intense, like CrossFit type high power output things. Right. I think it's important to see all of these things as tools, not as the answer in and of themselves. So you can over fast. I've done it, right? Like you can have too much intermittent fasting. You can do it the wrong way. Same thing with all sorts of exercise. You can over-recover. You can over-train, right? So when it comes to fasting, it's something that I think for the people it works for is amazing. But most people aren't willing to kind of make that jump because it seems so scary. Or you're, you're worried, as, as you raised this point many times in your book, of being accused of having some sort of eating disorder, right? <laughs> or if you're not eating, it's just like extremely uncomfortable for other people. They're like, oh my God, I'm eating and, and, and they're not eating. What is going to happen here? But yeah, so when it, when it comes to like running marathons, I did Krav Maga for a couple of years when I was in Austin, which is like a martial arts, which can get really intense if you're sparring or, or just like- Oh, wow. I was going to say that's really intense. Yeah. Yeah. CrossFit style workouts or, or level of intes- intensity. I've done a few different types of, of workouts like that. And I, uh, these days do train fasted almost all of the time for my runs, my strength workouts and things like that. But if I were training, I'm not training to compete right now, or maybe ever again, who knows? But if you are training to compete and you're looking for an edge, then it can be extremely useful, I think, to have some carbs. And also like carbs, aren't the worst thing in the world and your body is able to go through them and in fact does well burning through them when you have a certain amount that's right for you. So, you know, in terms of, of grams, I, for most people, I would say more like 50 to 150 or even 200 plus. Some people who are exercising a lot, who have a ton of muscle can do 400 plus grams of carbs in a day, no fasting and still be super shredded, you know? So there are definitely different ways of going about this. All that said, for my current training, especially looking at the world out there where you don't really have the option of having competitions right now for most people in in most sports, there are kind of two ways of going about this. You can try to go harder and faster and go for shorter times or and and basically eat that sweet potato or, or suck on that sugar goo or whatever it is. That, that ups your performance to do so. Or you can train fasted at the end of a day when you don't want to train, when you're at your, your lowest point, essentially, of energy in the day and get through that workout as, as a way to toughen you up. Because why, why are we doing health in general? For me, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's really a survival strategy. And so when things have gotten really hairy in my own life when the truck is broken down. I literally had to to walk through the desert and stuff like that. Like it was not ideal, you know, in terms of situation, you didn't just eat a sweet potato and like walk into the gym with your fresh gym socks on and all, you know what I mean? It's like when life really throws you those curveballs, 
you are sleep deprived, you haven't eaten, you're in trouble usually. So I think that's an important way of applying some level of training too, where you're, you're making it hard on yourself on purpose in order to kind of like persevere through that. I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. I wouldn't recommend that you just like try <laughs> fasting for 24 hours and then going for your personal record. <laughs> like that's not the way to go about this. You do have to treat it one step at a time. But the hormetic kind of way of looking at that training can be really useful, especially in times like these. Yeah, I love that so much. And like, because we'll often get questions from people wanting to know either how to lose like those last five pounds or burn the stubborn fat. And one of the things I've always said is if you set up a situation so that literally your body has to burn fat at that moment, which pretty much to me looks like what you just said, which is like, you know, do while you're fasting at the end of your fast and then doing the workout. I mean, it's got to turn somewhere. Yeah. And what's crazy about that, I know you've worn a CGM, continuous glucose monitor, and I have as well. And one of the things that surprised me so much was how well my body was able to tap into glucose when it needed to during my workouts. And then after the workout, I could almost eat whatever I wanted, as, as much sugar as I wanted within reason, without my blood sugar really being compromised. But if I tried to do that after not exercising all day or even before my workout, my glucose response was totally different than post-workout, like totally different. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I think I, I tested this by drinking a whole thing of coconut water, which was like 15 grams of sugar after my run. And this is probably like 4 or 5 p.m., my first meal of the day after my, I think I ran like seven or eight miles. I, I had that full thing of coconut water. I think I had two slices of sourdough bread, and then I ate four homemade cookies. And my blood sugar didn't go above, I think it was 140. It, was, it stayed below. And it, it goes up to 130, 135, even 140 sometimes just during workouts. So it's really incredible, the body's response to all of this. You know, it's, it's one thing to know that insulin is going to have a better response post-workout. It's one thing to kind of like know that th theoretically. But when you actually are able to track it, it's incredible. And it really does help inform the way that I work out and fuel and the rest of it. When you're able to back it up and track it to some degree, which thankfully we can just do it for usually a small amount of money instead of hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars like it used to take. You need to, <laughs> needed to be an Olympian or professional athlete to have a lot of this tech even a few years ago. When you're able to, to, to look at that and have the interest in it, it's, it's incredible what you can discover. Also, tortilla chips were the thing that spiked my blood sugar more than anything else. Tortilla chips. For different people, it's most likely different. The foods that have the biggest effect and the biggest spike. Yeah, wearing a CGM. Oh my goodness. So addicting. Yeah, I know. So eye-opening. Talk about like we were talking about the real time being told how things affect you. It's like you can't escape it. You're like, oh, okay. For listeners who are not familiar, a continuous glucose monitor, you wear it on your skin and it monitors your interstitial fluid to monitor your blood sugar levels in real time. Or there's like a 10 minute lag apparently, but pretty much real time. So actually, I'm really glad you said that as well. I was just listening to an interview on Peter Tia's podcast with I think Gerald Schulman, something like that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It was the deepest dive I've ever heard into insulin resistance and what is going on there. And he was putting forth 
the idea that really insulin resistance starts in the muscle, you know, because we have this potentially huge storage capacity in our muscles to uptake blood sugar or uptake sugar. But when their muscles start becoming insulin resistant, then we just can't, you know, take up the carbs basically. And I really didn't appreciate the role of exercise, especially like muscle depletion of glycogen and things like that. And managing insulin and health and all that until I feel like more and more recently, I'm starting to appreciate it. Yeah. I had to because I was running marathons and I knew what bonking felt like. (laughs) But, you know, anyone who's done keto a little too long also knows that feeling. So I think actually, yeah, when you kind of like bounce up against the edges of this, when you really challenge your body, that's what forced me into being interested in nutrition. Because I wasn't all that interested in it until I just discovered what a biochemical marvel the body is. And if you, you know, just do a few things kind of the right way in the, in the right timing, honoring the cycles of nature and all of that, it's incredible how our bodies respond. If we just get out of our own way and we try to mitigate some of the damage, like you said, coming from modern tech, like I'm wearing blue blockers right now as well. And I think it's important to, to kind of recognize that the technological environment that we're in and all of the electromagnetic radiation and interference and all these things flying through the airwaves right now. Our bodies are not used to being bombarded with 140 different (laughs) Wi-Fi networks at the same time. You know, that hasn't been well studied, but the research that I've looked into indicates that tech and, and, you know, just modern devices in general can be extremely damaging to our bodies, our, our mitochondrial function, even our insulin sensitivity, our, if your sleep is compromised, your health is going to fall apart. And that's honestly one of the reasons we moved out of, we had lived, I met my wife in Austin, Texas, and we'd lived downtown for many years. And that's one of the reasons we left is just looking at all of those different Wi-Fi networks where, <laughs> where we were staying. I'm like, the sleep has not been good. Let's try going up to the mountains. And lo and behold, it, it does for us, in most cases, get a lot better when we kind of go out to the middle of nowhere or we go out into the into nature where you're not being bombarded so much. And you know, if some people want to dismiss it as pseudoscientific, I would encourage them to actually look into the literature because there is a lot to be said about, you know, your brain growing tumors in response to the radiation it's exposed to. And it doesn't have to be, you know, like from a nuclear reactor or anything. It can it can literally be from a cell phone. Yeah, actually, also this week, I interviewed Mercola for his book, emf Oh, man, he's amazing. Listeners, if you want a deep, deep, deep dive into EMFs, that book <laughs> has a lot. Dr. Ann Louise Gittleman also has done some great work there because she herself got a brain tumor. Who is it? Dr. Ann Louise Gittleman. Ooh, I have to look her up. Yeah, she's awesome. I, I believe that book came out a, like more than a decade ago called Zapped, I want to say. Oh, that's her book? Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. I'm going to go read this. So I'm so jealous of you in Colorado. Come hang out. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I was actually thinking, I really want to move to Alaska because I love like cold, like Wim Hof stuff. <laughs> you don't have to go that far. I know. I know. I know. So I just, I'm like, I'm extremist. Like <laughs> sometimes I'm like Alaska, but yeah, maybe Colorado would be better. The bugs are killer in Alaska too. Mosquitoes are the size of hawks. <laughs> really? Oh my God. Yeah. Like even if I just pull out my phone, if I were to pull it out right now and look at the Wi-Fi networks, I mean, there's like a million. 
And it's upsetting to me. And like one of the things in EMF that he talks about is how it literally affects the intracellular calcium balance of our cells. I think that has really like widespread effects on really just everything. So like in my apartment, I have all the crazy things. Like I have like an EMF canopy and like I have (laughs) EMF blocking pajamas and everything's hardwired. But I do think I should probably move somewhere else. Yeah, you just got to do the best you can. I'm not going to say that it's a perfect utopia living out in the middle of nowhere, but I did grow up in that type of environment, so I'm kind of used to it. It's definitely not for everybody. But I think the point is, is try to do the things that you can, like you're doing, to mitigate some of those things that are around you. Even if it's just, you know, one, one simple thing that I do is, is that notifications are off from my phone, aside from maybe text messages. And so I'm not, I don't keep it on my person. And we're usually at home. And also you can, on most of these phones, I've done it on an Android and on an Apple, you can turn off the Bluetooth if you want. You can turn off the cell basically, but continue to make calls over the Wi-Fi. So if you have like a steady Wi-Fi connection with your phone, then you can, I, I have a couple of meters that measure the radiation coming off your phone. And when you turn that, that cell antenna off, it's a small fraction of what it was before. You're still getting some juice, you know, but man, when I plan to put out a video or two of just some of the radiation bouncing on that, that device, because it's pretty compelling. I've been turning off the the cell antenna whenever I can for the past couple of years, at least. I don't know. Can you feel a difference? It might be placebo effect, but I do tend to feel better, at least psychologically when that stuff is, is mostly off, but you don't have to be perfect. You know, it's like, we're not wearing aluminum clothes and hardwiring everything out here either. Like we have Wi-Fi going most of the time, but you can also do things like turning it off at night. You can just get a cheap little timer to plug your router into. And we've done this, but we do it sometimes. And that'll turn your router off off at night. And and when it's not broadcasting next to your head all the time, if it's close to your bedroom or whatever, that really does, that can help improve things. So just do what you can and try to get that, you know, EMF blocking underwear and <laughs> wear the blue blockers and just do the best you can. But it, also being too freaked out about it also doesn't help. I think the point is it's not as safe as most people think it is. So we do need to treat it with, with a degree of scrutiny and then see it as some amount of risk. But I don't think Wi-Fi is going to kill all of us or, or these other radiations that a lot of people are freaked out about. I think it's important to know if they're safe or not and get the heck out of there if you don't think they are. But I think there are a lot of things to be worried about and we shouldn't get too deep into any one of them because it's really easy to be paranoid and, you know, and, and overly worried about a lot of things. And that also affects our health. So we do have to look holistically at all this. So you think like with testing with your meter, the cost benefit of running the phone off of like Wi-Fi and using Wi-Fi compared to the the cell that it's probably better to air on the side of the Wi-Fi. Yeah, I would say so. And it's just, you need to dig into settings, I think a little bit, whether it's Android or Apple to enable the Wi-Fi calling thing. But yeah, if you can do that also, I don't, I don't, I don't like Bluetooth headphones. I don't totally trust them, but using speakerphone, you know, or using your little dongle dongle and plugging into that, all my stuff still is headphone jacks because I, I'm a dinosaur and I refuse to give up. But, you know, plugging in the old fashioned way and getting it away from your brain can also be a big win. Standing back a little farther from your computer, you know, like putting your computer up on a surface and maybe standing so it's not on your lap. There are just little things that you can do to kind of just, 
I see technology as a little bit of a hot potato, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I think we can all be, be reasonable about it and not freak out too much. I love that. I think it's such a good mentality. I think especially speaking to the paranoia, I think oftentimes people fall into different health conditions and then it, you just get like sucked into these rabbit holes. It's because you are trying to feel better and you want to do the right thing to feel better, but it can be really, really draining. I think especially a lot of people with like gut issues will fall into like the SIBO rabbit holes and it can be really, really overwhelming. And like you said, spark paranoia. And then I think people often get really intense fears of food because they don't know like they're going to react to things or if what they're doing is helping or hurting. And yeah, it's so hard to find that balance of being okay with your choices and still making the healthiest choices. So yeah. (laughs) Question. I was listening to your interview. So I was introduced to you by Cynthia Thurlow, who is fabulous. I love her. Yeah, she's wonderful. I was listening to your interview on her show and something I really identified with because I went through this as well, but you had an experience with carbon monoxide poisoning. Yes, it was brutal. I I read that in your book. Poof. So this was about a year and a half ago. My wife and I had, had just moved to Colorado pretty recently. And so we were staying in a rental house that, uh, basically they had promised to keep up, but had not followed the, the regulations. They didn't install carbon monoxide detectors, but said that they did. And the place had high ceilings. And they also didn't basically take care of the furnace, which ran the radiant heat as well as, you know, heating the whole house. And so because of the way that it was vented and the, and the way that the house just kind of like wasn't quite taken care of, while my wife and I were sleeping, we were poisoned by carbon monoxide that, that basically escaped from the furnace and vented up into our room. And carbon monoxide, for those who aren't familiar, which I, I really wasn't as familiar as I should have been before all of this happened. It's odorless, it's silent, you don't really know that it's there. And when you breathe it in, it displaces the oxygen in your system. So you essentially start starving your cells and then your organs and your nervous system of, of oxygen. And you don't really know that it's happening because as it's happening, it's <laughs> inhibiting your mental function. And, and essentially what happens when people start getting too much of a dose of carbon monoxide is you slowly lose consciousness and you slowly go to sleep, except you die if you, if you stay asleep for too long. And so that happened to us and our dog, and we just got a, a very concerning dose that took us many, many months to recover from. Like we, I couldn't move my head to the left or the right for a good month. I couldn't, couldn't drive. I couldn't. It was really hard to move. It was hard to think. When I tried playing guitar, which, which I've done professionally for decades, I couldn't. I couldn't do the things that I knew I could do. And that was like one of the most scary parts of my life. But the worst part of it was, you know, seeing what, what my wife, Allison, and uh, what our dog went through just kind of, it was a really close call. So long story short, I'd be happy to talk about some of the recovery that we did there. But for anyone out there, please just make sure that if you're renting a place, certainly if you own a place, RVs, cars, wherever you are, make sure that you have a smoke detector and a carbon monoxide detector. They're usually only 15, 20 bucks. You can get them combined. And if that thing's running, you know, just throw, make sure there's a fresh battery in it or that it's hardwired. And once you do, if that alarm goes off, get the heck out of there, get your family out of there. And 
we actually travel with a lot of these testing devices. We we <laughs> went way over the edge because of fear and pain and just like the you know how visceral that experience was with ordering so many different air testing devices, radon gas detectors, you know, combustible gas detectors, carbon monoxide detectors. We've we've been testing all this stuff and it's incredible. It, it's really incredible. I, we've been to a few other houses where we've stayed since and the ones with gas ranges, with gas ovens, almost all of them have some level of carbon monoxide that's seeping into your apartment as you're cooking or even, you know, as your furnace is running, the hot water heater is running. So make sure you have these detectors. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that experience on, on anyone. For me, I was in an apartment in LA that had an old school oven with the furnace and everything. And I didn't realize that the entire time I was living there, every single time I was using the oven at night, it was leaking carbon monoxide. Really common, by the way. Really common. Yeah. like, And I think for me, it probably wasn't the intense dose that you and your wife experienced. So instead, it was just an insidious, slow drain on me. It's like losing your vitality and just not knowing why. <laughs> it takes away like all of your higher functioning and you're like, what is happening? How long were you in that environment before you realized what it was? It was a few days because without the detectors, at first I thought, you know, maybe we were both getting really ill or there was something leaking into the water because there had been trouble with the hot water with all of this. So, uh, and, and the whale also. So we didn't, we didn't know, but it was extremely confusing. And I wish I'd known a little bit more about carbon monoxide or even radon. You know, radon gas is extremely common. Another one of those invisible ones. And it won't put you out of commission right away or kill you like carbon monoxide will, but it will give you cancer, lung cancer. And it's one of the leading causes of cancer. And it just naturally kind of seeps out of the ground in certain areas into your house if it's not well ventilated. Even the house where we're staying right now, it doesn't have a central air system. It does have radiant heat to, to heat us. It doesn't have air conditioning or anything. But when we left the house for the holidays and, and went to my wife's family's folks down in Arizona, we weren't here for a little over a week and everything was sealed up. Where, whereas normally we have some windows open. With everything sealed up, the radon levels went from totally safe to it's going to give you cancer levels, essentially, within just a few days. So when I came back and I looked at the levels that were on the meter, I was like, holy wow, let's open some windows. This is not good. I didn't realize how quickly that could happen. But it happens at an incredible amount of houses, especially if you live anywhere in the West. There's certain areas where it's a lot worse than others, but radon detectors are more expensive. But also, if you can afford it, I would just test all this stuff. You, know, you, you want to assume that the world is safe. And, and I don't want people to be paranoid about it. But just a little bit of this tracking business that I'm talking about, like with your own body, you know, if your temperature starts to go up and then it like consistently goes up the next day, it's not a good time to go for your super hardcore workout, right? And if you're feeling off and you're at home and you don't know if it has black mold or if you don't know if it has carbon monoxide, radon, all these other things, that's definitely something that you don't want to be an oversight because I also got hammered by black mold when I was in college and that took me out of commission for a good month. And, and I couldn't go to class or anything. That was really rough, but I didn't know what it was. This happens to a lot of people, a lot of people. And, and it's really easy to think that you have everything dialed in and you've thought of everything. But a lot of times the things that get you are the ones that you're willing to overlook or you know just don't really know about yet. So you don't know to 
have your guard up in that way. Yeah, 100%. The apartment that I was in with the carbon monoxide also had black mold. In the apartment I'm in now, (laughs) so many things have happened in this apartment. There was a flood in it and that led to mold. And then they, of course, had to fix the ceilings and then they painted and I had to stay here and the fumes, oh my, it like wiped out, (laughs) wiped me out. And then I got robbed actually this year in this apartment as well. But I'm actually really grateful that that that, that happened because it made me realize just how important security is. (laughs) So now I'm like, so on the security and actually, because I ended up getting Simply Safe and they actually have a carbon monoxide add-on as well. And I was like, yes. (laughs) So, um, so that's a, a good way to go. But yeah, I would love to hear because you talked about how you guys did recover from that. One quick question about it. Like, do you think when people do go through these experiences, can they completely recover? Or do you think that, you know, damage does occur and maybe you can never quite get back to what you were? I know that's kind of a dismal question. Yeah, that feels like a stab in the gut a little bit because I went through this up and down for for a while. You know, also seeing my wife and what she went through and and health-wise, we really took a big hit for six to eight solid months. We were sick. We were like very much suboptimal. And I didn't know. I, I really didn't know if we'd ever come back. It didn't feel like I would. When that happens, like when you get injured or the closest thing I can compare it to is I had a concussion, a couple of concussions that were that were really bad when I was younger. That's the closest thing I can compare it to. And do you come back from a concussion? Usually, right? Like usually. But if you have enough of them, it does start to do permanent damage. And especially when your nervous system is involved. I don't know how many mulligans you get. You know, I, I think you get like one or two good concussions that are kind of free. <laughs> they might not be totally free. But man, if, if you're living in a place that's dosing you up with carbon monoxide or black mold, or your cells aren't getting oxygen for a long period of time over time. Yeah, I think it can cause serious damage. But also, like, do we just get damaged as we age? You know, like, how much do you want to submit to I'm getting older and my body's falling apart? Or how much do you want to submit to I'm the sum of my past injuries? <laughs> right. So I'll, t- I'll speak to the music piece because that combined with a physical strength and and running and stuff like that, that kind of helped convince me that you can come back from almost anything, which is, like I said, I was not able to play simple things on guitar or even piano that I could just play in my sleep. And that continued for months, but also you lose your, your conditioning, right? If you're in good physical athletic condition and then you stop working out, you become deconditioned pretty quickly. And so that happened to me in music and in physical training. And I tried to come back too hard, too fast a couple times. And that really set me back. Like I couldn't get out of bed. My, my nervous system was really struggling. And I was just experiencing a lot of pain and just lack of mental energy after I expended too much too soon. So when, when you are coming back, like know that it's more about consistency than trying to push yourself too hard because you'll get setbacks that way. The more compromised you are and the harder you try to push it, <laughs> it'll backfire sometimes. So just honor that. And, and that was my piece of, of humble pie. But then, you know, I started practicing again and I started playing music on a regular basis. And I, 
you know, and I was going through my physical strength exercises with no weights at first. Then I slowly added the weight back on, which came back quicker than I thought. And then I basically got back to, or, or even exceeded where I was strength-wise before the injury within a year, probably. I haven't done everything from a musical perspective as I did in the past, but whatever I'm training up now, whatever I'm practicing, I can play. I can play again, you know, and, and that's more a result of coming back from the injury and, and, and realizing that you're really the sum of your habits more than anything else. And it's, if I didn't play guitar for a couple of months without the injury, I would also be totally deconditioned, you know, like I couldn't play at that time because I was still a little bit dosed up and damaged, but it convinced me from musical, physical strength perspective, even doing interviews, I didn't know if I'd ever, I used to record eight hour long interviews in a row, sometimes more than that. Sometimes I do that two days in a row and I didn't know if I'd ever be able to stand for one again. And so I kind of came back slowly and now, you know, I, I just like, I, I think I did eight or nine the other day and I've been doing that for many weeks on end now, just like back. I don't want to say back to normal because it's a different normal. I think it's better now. I'm more intentional for the skills that I want to develop and keep in my life. Definitely more humble. And, and, and grateful for even being here. You know, I see life as kind of a, a different thing and you don't want to be wasting your time. You want to be involved. A, a lot of people want to get the FU money and then just kind of do whatever they want. But I think, especially after going through all this, coming back, the thing that I missed more than anything was helping other people. Like I was still getting emails from people asking questions like, how can I get my health back in line? Like I'm, I'm trying to do this thing or I want to compete and I'm carrying all this extra weight and I just couldn't help anyone. I, I could barely even help myself. And I, I just missed it so much. I missed, I, I hated not being there for the people who I thought I should be there for. And that was like such a loss. It put me in a completely different frame of mind. And my wife has come back too. And our dog came back. It took time. And then it took installing the habits that you want again, so that you can kind of get your chops back, whether that's your daily meditation, playing music or you know, acting or free writing, sketching, any of that stuff, just like put it back in your life and see how you recover. Not immediately, but see how you recover for the, the next few months. And I'd be surprised if you didn't get back to where you were or, or even exceed it, especially if it's something that's not physically competitive. I, I do think that there's some amount like these professional athletes who blow out their knee, some of them never come back in the same way. And I think, you know, it's important to recognize that when that happens in your own life, that's okay. But then maybe you're just training for a different reason. Instead of like training to compete, like I said before, for the best time to be the strongest ever or just competition in general, you know, train for longevity, train for your mental health, train for whatever reason you want to in your daily life that, that gives you meaning. It doesn't have to be something that comes with all these, these stars and all of these awards at the end and and all of these banners or whatever. A lot of times, the best things you'll do in your life are the, are the small, simple things. And so if you're, if you're willing to do those and you're able to after you come back from an injury like this, I think you really can come back from almost anything. And then there's the, you know, kind of like spiritual way of looking at this is, are we our bodies or are we something more? And, and does that something more have power over our bodies to help them heal, to help them be you know, you create whatever life you want to. Miracles have happened in my own life and in front of my eyes. And I believe that the placebo effect isn't something that we should just brush away. It's something that we should try to harness 
with our own faith and spirituality. I'm not a, a diehard adherent of any religion. We don't really show up that way. But I think it's important to put some meaning behind this and, and try to think about why we're all chasing after health to begin with. I love all of that so much. Um, yeah, it, it's so true that so maybe, you know, if a person experiences a health issue or physical injury, even if they don't ever exactly get back to 100% on like a cellular physical level of where they were before, they can get new things that they never would have received on like the mindset side of things and the growth and the new habits and the priorities and the gratitude. And I think for me and all my challenges, I would not have this show or I would not be doing what I was doing if I hadn't experienced health issues that made me want to just find answers and just, you know, read all the things and, you know, find the people and share what I learned and what I experienced with others. So I think everything definitely has a purpose and amazing good things can come from it. And I love that you said, yeah, the placebo effect. I'm fascinated by it. It just, it's like the perfect example of how our mind and our thoughts and perspective of everything can literally affect ourselves <laughs> on a cellular level. So I love it. Switching topics a little bit, but like I said, you did release Designer Babies, your poetry book. What made you decide to write this? It was a coping strategy. I didn't think the world was going in a good direction a few years ago. I don't know when exactly it was, but it just felt like things were getting better for a minute, maybe in like the early 2010s. You know, it was, it was a really exciting time, as I'm sure you remember, in alternative health and all of these ancestral health movements and paleo and like wonderful books coming out and all this stuff and people getting the message, losing weight, getting their health back, you know, performing again, whatever. And then it's just things got hairy and, and like the, the top down powers keep calling this progress, but it's like, I don't know who's steering this thing. And, and you look at our health and the lack of free speech, that's, you know, the lack of free expression on platforms and the censorship and shadow banning has been happening to us for years. It's gotten way worse though. And, and so to some degree, like when that started happening and I realized that I couldn't say some of my beliefs without being taken down from the internet or existence or, or attacked, <laughs> then I wanted to funnel it into art maybe to help cope and to help like make sense of a lot of this stuff. So for me, I've written music and songs and, and poetry for a long time. It's, it's one of the ways that I like uh, process the rough stuff in the world and process feelings and trauma. And also it allows you to encapsulate these little memories so I, I've always loved experimenting with different media, different way and different forms of communication, different forms of, of getting the word out there. And so, you know, if I'm just like on my podcast, fat burning man with my fat burning man pants on, I'm not swearing, I'm making it family friendly. And I'm talking about things that are, for the most part, non-political. And I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, hopefully be too overbearing with my belief systems or anything like that. Whereas in this book, I felt like it was if people wanted to go a little bit deeper and hear some of my, my perspectives, which some of them are true and, and true stories or whatever. Some of them are just kind of like fun little creative exercises, think pieces or, or, or whatever. But I didn't really intend to put out a poetry book or a book like that. It more just I woke up in the morning and these little rhymes would come out. I realized that I could get away with saying a lot more if I were able to rhyme it. And so I decided to do that. 
the response to putting out that book was really interesting because it did extremely well internationally, although it's been banned and <laughs> unavailable in certain countries. And <laughs> the people who have been able to get it have, have really enjoyed it for the most part. It seems like they get the jokes. I, I really haven't, I thought it might kick the hornet's nest because I do go out on a limb and say some maybe politically unsettling things in there and, and or personally unsettling or whatever. But I hope it's like a little bit of a grown-up version of of Shel Silverstein or Roald Dahl, who were massive influences on me when I was coming up. And I think you can put a lot of meaning and a lot of kind of like processing of emotions in a few well thought out words and stanzas and, and songs. And so that's what I tried to do, to do. And I'm glad you enjoyed it, Melanie. You know, I loved it. And Where the Sidewalk Ends was my favorite book growing up. And I, I got senses of that. I was wondering if that had been one of your influences growing up because I got a lot of that that vibe. Totally. In, in more than one way, because Shel Silverstein, and I didn't know this when I was a child, but he was one of my favorites. My whole family just loved. We, we had a couple of his records <laughs> and just listened to him all the time. But he was a very talented songwriter and multi-instrumentalist as well. And he wrote a boy named Sue. He wrote a lot of songs for Johnny Cash and country superstars and all sorts of stuff. He, he's one of those people who had a number of different careers. And also he was an incredible cartoonist and his draftsmanship was on point. You know, like he actually put in the time and skills. He wasn't a faker. And, and so that really inspires me. And it's interesting though, because you look at a lot of these people's careers and where the sidewalks ends is just incredible. But I do think it's a shame that that for as many people who know about that, they're not really familiar with some of the, the deeper or more mature work that he put out later. I was not familiar with any of that. <laughs> wow. He wrote for Playboy for years. Yeah, I mean, it's really, he's, he was a wacky, wacky dude, but a lot of his writing and his cartoons, I, I believe he did political cartooning for a long time as well. And I'm just fascinated by that because why do artists create? I don't know. <laughs> but they do. And there are a few who really stand out. And even if some of the work appears frivolous, I'm not sure that, that it's as frivolous as it appears. I am personally fascinated by language, words, vernacular, everything. I'm just like obsessed with it, probably to a very intense degree. In your book, you know, some of them are long, but then some are very, very short. And I love things like that where it's super short, but you relay like so much in that tiny little amount. Like the one watch for dinosaurs. You tell <laughs> it's only a few lines. You need to know the title to know what happened in the few lines that happened. I thought it was brilliant. So listeners get that. <laughs> also, I sorry, I just have like really random questions about it. Did you choose the like the typewriter looking font as a commentary on not being technology? Kinda. Yeah, kinda. It was like I wanted to play to our weaknesses a little bit. If you look at the Wild Diet, that's like a you know wonderfully traditionally published book. We used a, a big publisher, and you know there's the hard copy and the dust cover and all this stuff, and it's got nice pictures on the inside. And then self publishing this book, we kind of wanted to play to our weaknesses, so it's just got like one silly cartoon on the front with a lot of like symbolism in it that my wife wife did, and then just a super simple typewriter type font because I think especially in this modern Instagram, Snapchat, TikToky type world, it's all just like flashbang, instant gratification and it does the work for you kind of, right? It's like a lazy way of 
consuming content. It's that reality TV, quick editing, right in your face type style, obnoxious commercial. So I, I wanted this book to be a little bit it's got a uh, moat around it, right? Like <laughs> if you want to get to what I wrote, then you kind of have to do the work and read it. And it, I'm not using any flashbangs. I want it to be in your words, right? Like in your voice, it's meant to be read aloud and kind of make you more of a participant as you're going through the content in the book instead of force feeding you everything, if that makes sense. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an near-infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near-infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. 
I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Friends, You guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. 
It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Wait, I've never thought about that before. That when it's in the written form, yeah, you become the person who materializes it into its, you know, manifestation. You're not looking at a finished product. Oh, wow. That is so cool. Yeah. You have a lot of poems in it about social media and that whole world. And I mean, I personally, social media is like partly the bane of my existence. I don't know. (laughs) Like my sister, she's so confident and she's like the selfie type and like all the selfies and all the pictures. And it just really stresses me out a lot. But I know like I'm a creator, an actor, like I love creating things I know my audience loves it and I love sharing the information. So it's this constant struggle of like how to engage with social media in a healthy way for both me and my audience. How do you do that? (laughs) I've taken a year off a few times from social media and the internet, actually. And that gave me a lot of perspective on what it's for (laughs) and what it's not for. And a lot of people are being taken advantage of by the way that technology and social media operates now. And I think we're all familiar, or most of us are familiar with kind of like the mechanisms of that, but we're still falling prey to it. Taking time away, though, kind of made me realize, well, why do you log on? You know, are you bored? No, I don't want to. I don't want to log on if I'm bored. I don't want to like hop on social media for that reason. So what is it? What's the most meaningful thing that's come out of social media? Well. Uh, Social media, after running multiple online businesses for a decade now, social media is almost useless for our business. It makes almost no income. It it drives almost like no purchases. And that's largely because we don't really do paid traffic, you know, like a lot of people do and that's, that's their business and that's okay. 
Okay, so it's not it's not really for making money. It's not because we're bored. What is it? It's for connecting with people. That was the original promise. And that's how I go on now is I see every single, you know, basically social media platform as a simple AOL instant messenger type app. Because none of them are more innovative at this point. Like none of them are doing anything interesting or new or cool in my mind. And we don't really need anything more than AOL instant messenger was like back in the 90s when I chatted on it with my friends, you know, in like elementary school and stuff. So I'll hop on, I will check the messages that people have sent to me and sometimes the comments and I'll respond to them and and try to get that connection off of social media as quickly as possible (laughs) and onto email or phone or, or virtual connection or even meeting in person. And then doing our work that way, completely outside of social media. So with some rare exceptions, I don't look at the feed. I'm not looking at notifications generally. I'm looking at, at, at messages. I'm looking at people. I'm trying to find the people there, the real ones. There are a lot of fake ones, especially when you're like a big influencer or you've got these big accounts or whatever. You get all sorts of crap sent to you. So you have to sift through like, what is going on here? Is this a real person? Is this a foreign government trying to take advantage of us? Is, or are they trying to hack us here? Is this a, you know, an actual good guest for a podcast or whatever else? Navigating through all that takes a lot of mental energy. And navigating through the hateful comments, which come from, <laughs> I don't want to say that they're cowards, but there are a lot of things that have been said to me, and I'm sure you and, and many of us out there, often anonymously on the internet that would never be said to us in person. And so I think that's, that's very unnatural for us as humans and as social beings. And we have to understand that we're in dangerous waters anytime we log on, because that's kind of the mentality. It's just, you know, the sh- there, are, there are 13 year olds just like posting stuff for shock value and, and hating on you for shock value or whatever. And there are serious haters out there too, but they're generally suffering a lot more than the people who are creating. So there's a lot to wade through. I think if there's a way to just not be on social media that works for you, do that. Do that. And then connect with your friends, your real friends, not Facebook friends. Connect with your friends and your family and the people who matter to you in a meaningful way outside of social media. Because almost nothing meaningful happens on social media. There are no useful conversations most of the time. People aren't really learning anything anymore. In order to learn, we need to go deeper. And so You don't get that from scrolling through feeds or scrolling through photos. If you're interested in in catching up with how, you know, like someone who went to your college, one of your friends or roommates or whatever, how they're doing and what their family's up to, like look up their name. Don't scroll through your feed until like three days later you come across something that they said or posted, right? Don't use feeds anymore. Use all these platforms to find people again and try to humanize these connections. So much of that resonated. Actually, so the the exception for me where I have found a lot of value is my own personal Facebook group that I have for my audience. I think the format of Facebook groups, despite what might be going on with like Facebook censoring and and then all of that. So that aside, I think the format is more conducive to, you know, conversations and because I don't really have even rules for the group, except you have to be kind, you have to be open to what everybody says, and then you can't just randomly promote content. Like you have to have conversations. (laughs) And I found it to be like a really, really wonderful place. But I have had to, at least for me, work on like, how do I engage with it still like time-wise? 
in a healthy manner. Like, cause when I first started it, I was like, oh, I can read every post and every comment. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> like you don't have to engage with absolutely everything. But actually one of my other, one of my favorite short poems that you had was, please don't call me an influencer. <laughs> can I read it? It's only two lines. Yeah, please. So for listeners, it's please don't call me an influencer. Nothing even rhymes with influencer. I thought that was brilliant, but I was like, oh, he understands <laughs> all of the, the stuff that, that goes on there. And did you watch The Social Dilemma when it came out? One of the biggest takeaways from that that I think a lot of people took was something that I had already been doing and it's something you already touched on, but it was the massive relief and like freedom that you feel when you turn off all the notifications. That has had one of the biggest like effects on me. Like, and, and listeners, it might not seem like a big deal, but I learned recently why this is so distressing. So when you see, like there's an app and then you see like the little number and the red circle saying that, you know, you have notifications, it's the equivalent from an evolutionary perspective of being tapped on the shoulder and not knowing like what, <laughs> if it's like something that wants to eat you, you feel like you have to address it it kind of can instigate like the the fight or flight response. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. And so like going on my computer and turning off all the little red notifications, turning off all alerts, I make it so that I have to personally go engage with something and see if there's notifications. Like it's not going to just pop up (laughs) in my life. So I loved that. You were talking about the importance of like real connections and That is something else that I've really, really experienced is, especially in this world, I mean, like you said, being an influencer, there's so many brands, there's so many people, it's hard to know like what is real, it's overwhelming. I mean, they say that how many relationships can we actually sustain in our brain? Isn't it like 300 or? 150, supposedly. Yeah, it's not, it's not many. Or those are like real connection, Dunbar's number. It's not in the thousands, that's for sure. Like most people's Facebook friends, right? Yeah, like we can only literally sustain a certain amount of real relationships in our head. So that's something that's super important to me is finding those real relationships and maintaining them and forming like an actual connection and group. I'm dying to know. So when you went off social media, you went off completely for like a year? Yeah. And I had a team who was helping to, you know, keep everything going. I think we did have some members of our team, like if there were questions coming through there, Basically, I'd be responding to a couple of things here and there, but I was not on these platforms as a consumer, like in any way, logging in or whatever. And it's not like I was doing it super hardcore. It was more just like we only had, let's see, the first time, 20 gigabytes of upload and download internet when we were living in the Smoky Mountains. So no streaming. I was still doing my video streaming show. So that ate up all of our data and more. So I, I couldn't you know, watch YouTube or, or really use social media or video streaming. And I just didn't, I didn't miss it. It's like when you don't have Instagram, you don't use Instagram and you have all of that time back. <laughs> when you don't have any of these platforms back, you have all of that time back and all of that mental energy of being tapped on your shoulder and all these people messaging you. And like you said, every time there's a new notification, you kind of go, <gasps> and there's a, is that a threat? Is that, am I going to be eaten by this tiger. <laughs> when that goes away, it's like all of a sudden you write a book or a couple books, you know, you create a podcast. That one year later, let's see, 2017 or 2018, when I wasn't using Instagram and 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 really social media, 
I created over 400 different virtual reality experiences, music videos, adventure tours. We traveled to maybe two dozen different states just going on these different road trips and all this stuff. I didn't miss social media at all. I saw so many friends. I saw so much family. There were so many hugs and real connections with people and good times. Why would I ever want to log on again? Now, that said, I do log on sometimes. And if it weren't for our Facebook group, which we've had for 10 years now, if it weren't for that, I I have really, really seriously thought about getting off Facebook altogether many, many times and all these different networks. Where I am, though, is I'm still waiting a little bit for the alternative. Because what I don't want is people who are out there who do need help or want to connect or, or could benefit from what we create. I, want, I don't want to lose them, right? Like, I want to be there if they're looking for us on Facebook and Instagram and whatever else. Like, I, I, don't, I don't want to disappear completely. But I personally do not want to spend my time there. So balancing that is really difficult. But I do believe that as soon as there's a viable alternative or a few viable alternatives to Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever, they'll come and eat their lunch the same way that MySpace disappeared and Friendster and all of these other ones that, that were everything back in the day. Pets.com, right? Like someday Facebook will be pets.com, I do believe, because they've just burned too much trust. Like I really resent, honestly, having my you know, group there because I know that we're not able to say all the things that we want to say and really communicate with each other in a fully transparent way. It's still useful. Yes, we can share things and communicate to some degree, but I'm waiting you know, for some alternative where we can actually say things that we believe in, <laughs> no matter what word it is, no matter what medical subject it may be about, we need to be able to ask questions and, and communicate. And right now, we just can't do that, honestly, on any social media platform that I'm aware of. Even, I don't know, maybe Parler or some of the ones that are branding themselves as like free speech centric. I don't know. There are a lot of promises out there. But when the winner is clear, we're all going to flock there because I don't trust YouTube. I don't trust Facebook. I don't trust Instagram. I never will again either. And they've, they've burned our trust so hard so many times that I just can't wait for some really positive platform with people behind it who are good people instead of, you know, these, well, the Zuckerbergler is what I call him in my book. But we, we don't need all these billionaires surveilling us anymore and trying to take advantage of our connections with, with our families and, and trying to mine our photos of our grandmother for data that they can sell to advertisers. Like, we just don't need that anymore. So I think we all need to, like, figure out a way to build something better. I've talked to a lot of people who might be. And whenever the winner is clear, we're going to get the heck off of Facebook and, and go to wherever the party is better. So do you think that that next thing would be something like platform-wise similar to Facebook, but it would just be run by like, quote, good people? Like, is that the difference? Like the people running it? Well, that's the thing. Like I said, like Facebook copied they really didn't invent any features. Most of these social media companies and, and their inventors are, are thieves, well-compensated thieves who have better legal teams than the people who are smaller than them, right? But imagine if there were a social media network or some sort of platform that weren't run by a monster who was taking advantage of you. Like, I would log on to that for sure. Okay, gotcha. Have you experienced, like, really intense censorship of the content that you've created? Like you mentioned YouTube. So much so that I'm really careful 
and and I'm sure it frustrates some people that I speak generally because I'm not using certain words that I know will will tr- r- you know trigger the algorithm or or do something even on other people's shows. So yeah, that's been true since honestly 2014, but it got a lot worse in 2017 and 2018 where literally we would upload things that would be disappeared. And that's happened many times with with written word, with audio, not so much with audio, but definitely with with video. There have been instances documented by by us by the people around us of some really wacky business going on and which at this point you know at first people are just like oh you must be some sort of crazy conspiracy theorist type influencer <laughs> and that's why you're being censored or whatever and it's like really let's let's take a look at my work and my track record and see where i'm coming from because i don't know maybe i am crazy maybe we're making all of this up but i don't think so once you experience not being able to say words online at the same time that you're not able to visit your family or, or go outside or go to conferences, <laughs> like if you're prohibited from communicating with people, that is a serious, serious problem. <laughs> it's a serious problem. And it's one that we'll have to make better. But it's, it's really hard to navigate around, to be perfectly honest, because I would love to say explicitly exactly where I stand. <laughs> about a lot of the things that are going down in the world right now. But I don't feel comfortable doing so, as many people do not feel comfortable doing so online. I feel like that's part of the plan, is to take away our ability to express ourselves and really think deeply about things and explore ideas together. That is all being taken away. Unfortunately, I think it's, it's kind of part of a, a dark plan, but it's totally not going to work because you can't keep good ideas down forever. And whoever is censoring things and trying to keep some ideas propped up and other ones from never ever seeing the light of day, I mean, whoever is pulling the strings up there, that's, that's way too much work and they're not smart enough to outsmart all of us forever because humans are, are just way too beautiful and connected and psychic, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, and like some people have superpowers and you can't take all of those away from everybody. You can try to make us all go online and censor us for a while. But I believe the ideas will only get stronger during this time because after, you know, it's been almost a year now and I can't, I can't even tell. It's hundreds, maybe thousands of people over the past year I've connected with who are new friends, old friends, family, just people in Thailand and Indonesia and South America and Peru and Colombia. It's just amazing what we're able to do. And, you know, if we're not on the record, publicly appearing all the time, then you can kind of say whatever you want. You might be surveilled about it, (laughs) but we can still say whatever we want. We can do whatever we want for the most part. And I think practicing, my main point of all this is for mental health, it's super important not to get too caught up in the consumption side of this. Because if you do go into just consuming content online, you are being manipulated. You are being indoctrinated, brainwashed, whatever you want to call it. And now, like, m- most of the platforms are out there on record kind of saying this, that, that, yes, they're going to say that certain ideas stand and other ones do not, that certain people are able to have platforms and other people are not. And if you're not one of the chosen ones, then basically you're going to be scrubbed from the internet, <laughs> which has happened to a lot of our friends. But, you know, it's like Mercola is still out there. Josh Axe had his Facebook page taken down. I think it's back up. I know Rob Wolf has talked a lot about censorship. He was censored so much that I didn't even see anything from him for a year, even though I was following 
him on all, on all these different platforms because I hadn't even realized quite what was going on. But it's pretty sinister. But if you're willing to just operate around it, you know, we all chose to be here at this time for whatever reason, then we can adapt and we can let it make us stronger and hopefully be thankful for it in retrospect because they're dropping the ball big time and they're not going to get our trust back. Yeah. I mean, I know it can seem conspiratorial, but it's, it's happening. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It sounds conspiratorial, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And if it's happening, is it a conspiracy? Yes, it is. It is a conspiracy. Not related to this, related to political things, but I was contemplating that because I was looking at different, quote, political conspiracies right now, and people will attach the word conspiracy. They don't know what it means. Yeah, I was thinking about the power of that word because all you have to do is, so if a person has an idea and they voice this idea, if you attach the word conspiracy, then it it just dismisses the credibility of the idea. And then I was thinking what you just said. I was like, but what if that's the actual truth? Is it still a conspiracy then? Well, technically, maybe. Yeah, but it's not a theory. It's an actual conspiracy. (laughs) So when people say the word conspiracy theory, they say it, or the phrase, they're saying it in a way that it could never exist, right? Like that a conspiracy is something that could only ever be a theory. But the original use of that word means that it's not like the theory is the critical part of that. You take the theory away and this is a conspiracy. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's just so powerful. But even like for me, like the past few weeks, I've been working with like a third party established PR company because we wanted to do like branding and stuff like that. And they were brainstorming content with me. And I was like, okay, well, you know, can we write things about intermittent fasting and all this? And they're like, no, we, you can't really talk about anything health related because then you won't rank in Google news. I was like, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. They took us off of Google. We had millions of people coming to our websites and poof, they took it similar with a lot of the platforms. You're not allowed to. And it's like, I don't even say the V word. I don't even use the, the C word. I don't use a lot of these words that are uh, but that doesn't stop you from not being able to exist. Like they still try to scrub you for some reason. So if you're in health and have been talking about it for a long time, then you're just not able to talk about it. But all of the politicians are <laughs> and all of the Bill Gateses and billionaires are able to talk about whatever they want to, but we're not, I don't know. I, I just think that that's, I didn't vote for that. Right. Like, especially we're in unique positions as people who've been creating in in the world of health for a long time, you and I and a lot of the people around us, but who wants that? Do you really want us gone? And if you do, why? Because I'd love to know. I don't want to jinx it, but something I was grateful for and am grateful for thus far is the bait and switch. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, just like you said, people just basically disappearing with all their content. I think my audience is at a point where it wasn't like big enough for it to be taken down, but it was still like substantial enough to like have a substantial audience. So knock on wood, (laughs) like I wasn't super intensely affected, but I, I saw, you know, so many people that I respect like you, Rob Wolf, things like that really getting hit hard. So. And why? That's a question that I've never gotten an answer to from any platform out there. But I feel like if you're going to take away our free speech and literally take away our words and our ability to communicate with our communities, our families, and all the rest of it, if you're taking words out of our mouths and making us disappear, they need to be held responsible for that. Every single word 
that they try to inhibit, especially someone who has a, a public platform, if they're trying to prevent the public from seeing someone's work or what they have to say, I mean, how is that okay in any way? And who is deciding? And, and how long do we let this go on until we really start to get serious about this? Because yes, you know, Rob and I and, and, and you and a lot of other people out there will continue creating, no matter what, I'm pretty sure. But at, at some point, the platforms really do need to be held accountable for trying to disappear people from not just the internet, but kind of from public consciousness in general, kind of from the world. Because if Rob and I and all these other people aren't able to go to conferences and speak like we have been for many, many years, and we're also not allowed to speak anywhere online, like I said, that's a big problem. I'm not just kind of, or, or hopefully people don't think that I'm just crying about it and complaining as someone who creates on these platforms. I, I really feel the most pain when I try to log on and check someone's channel for what they've uploaded recently, and it's gone. Someone who I've trusted for many years, someone who's a doctor or a researcher or is legit, has been disappeared once again from one of these platforms. Why? Probably because they were trying to help people be healthy, right? Like you're not allowed to help people be healthy anymore. You're only allowed to talk about how sick everyone is and how bad everything is and how the only answer is going to come from the top-down government that solves all of our problems. Yeah, it is like you just said. It's really fascinating that it's a lot of the health topics <laughs> that are censored. You'd think that they would matter more than ever right now, but nope. Yeah, it, it's really, really disconcerting. Like you could tell it was like black and white. Like I used to Google certain health topics and everything that would come up would, especially because the people talking about it most were people like Rob Wolf and stuff like that. So those are the type of sites that would come up or like Josh Axe. And now it's like five main, like health lines, like five main sites that come up. You have to like keep clicking or go back to Google Scholar, which is. But it doesn't mean that the information there is true because it's not. I look those things up sometimes and I'm just like, wow, how are they not completely leg legally liable for all this misinformation that's right here on the front page of Google? I know. It's crazy. Okay. Some really quick rapid fire questions for you. Yeah, yeah, do it. Just from reading your book, The Poetry, have you eaten crickets? Yes, I have eaten crickets and I do not recommend it. <laughs> You'll be picking legs out of your mouth for half an hour. It's grim. Okay. I was just really curious. Second was, I'm dying to know if the fluffer nutter marshmallow story is true. Is that really how you wooed your wife? <laughs> oh, well. That's one of the stories that I guess is mostly true, where the fluffernutter is kind of symbolic, but she also literally didn't know what a fluffernutter was when we first got together. I introduced her. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I was raised on fluffernutters to some degree. They, they were at least out there, part of the, the public thing. But also, I'm from New Hampshire, and it sounds like you know she was from California, Arizona, and she just didn't get the fluffernutter memo. So I'm, I'm dying to know, was this fluffernutter, was it like the paleo version, or was it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, there's not really a great way to recreate marshmallow fluff that I've learned, <laughs> but, um, peanut butter is absolutely one of the best. I, I, it's so good tasting to almost every animal out there. I don't know why it's a little bit bad for us, but it is kind of, and then marshmallow fluff of course is terrible for us, but it kind of represents to me 
I had to put on a little bit of a show, you know, on the dating scene. And we all do, I think. And so it's kind of referencing the fluffernutter to me symbolizes BS. You know, it's like you have a peanut butter sandwich and then you put this ridiculous marshmallow fluff stuff inside of it. Like the peanut butter sandwich is real, but the fluffernut, like the fluff is not, if that makes sense. I've never had one. And now I'm thinking about if I should. (laughs) (laughs) You should probably have, you know, like I said, marshmallow fluff is not in any way good for you, but you should probably have a Vegemite sandwich and a a marshmallow fluff sandwich before you, you croak, you know, it's a good bucket list. I do wonder, cause there's a lot of like keto marshmallow collagen, you know, to get your collagen recipes, but I don't, I wonder if there's any fluff versions of that. I'm going to have to. I don't know. And if I eat sandwiches these days, it's going to be an open face sandwich for the most part. So you, it would be hard to make a fluff or nutter. But one of my post-run favorite little treats is a piece or a couple pieces of toast with peanut butter on one side and then cream cheese on the other side. And for whatever reason, I really like that. And that's kind of like a fluff or nutter. Okay. I have to ask, what type of toast do you do with the grains? Yeah, that's a great question. We've experimented with a bunch of different kinds, but my wife almost always has a sourdough starter going in the kitchen. And so she'll make up some loaves sometimes, but oftentimes we'll go for, uh, I'm not really like brand loyal, but there are a few, there are a handful of companies out there that make sprouted and, and sourdough breads with ancient grains like red fife wheat and legumes or millets. You know, sometimes it'll be spelt. And so I'm not completely gluten-free all the time. I appreciate the ancient grains and we'll cook with them sometimes. So it's going to be an old school toast. It's not generally either going to be one of those more recent, highly processed gluten-free breads. You can find a lot of those out there and some of the paleo breads are okay, but I don't know, they taste like baking powder or baking soda or something, a lot of them, and they're really expensive. So a lot of times we just like making our own bread or getting the you know, also Ezekiel, you know, some of those really hearty health food store breads that have been around for a long time. Some of those can be useful too. I like the filling kind, kinds of breads more than the really kind of like crusty or white flour type French breads. Yeah, I really love hearing you say that. And actually, recently in my group, somebody posted about bread and they were saying that they wanted to know if they were alone and that they like brought back bread after not having it for a long time and they felt fine. And they, and they were saying that like, was it possible that maybe they could have bread in their life? And the comments were, there were so many comments of people experiencing the same thing. So it was really, really, really interesting. And also it's, it's about finding the right producer, food producer or company for you. Because like I said before, there is something in modern bread that really messes me up. I don't know if it's the dough conditioners or whatever, but there's something that, that does have a negative effect in, in traditional flour for me and modern wheats in general. But these old school wheats and, and old school grains where the bread, you know, is prepared in the old fashioned way, going through every step that it needs to go through the fermentation or, you know, the sprouting or whatever it is, those things can really work for some people. And as long as the point is that you shouldn't be overdoing it on, on breads or living off of breads and having, you know, cereal for breakfast and then a, a big old hoagie for lunch right? And then pasta for dinner. That's the real problem. But I think if you're having, you know, some toast every once in a while, sourdough, and some, we, we like making our own pancakes. I think you can have a lot of fun with your carbs, but we definitely try to hit carbs with fiber or with some sort of like 
like whole source of carbs, like less easily digested. So you're not getting the high glycemic effect on your blood sugar of just like, you know, eating a whole bunch of white bread. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely incredible. You said you had a lot of time and I milked it completely. It's great. I'm I'm so happy that I had the time today. Yeah, no, this has been absolutely incredible for listeners. I'll put links in the show notes to the books. Definitely get the wild diet. Definitely get the designer babies, the poetry. It's so amazing. So incredible. This is an ironic question, but as far as all the social media stuff, how can listeners (laughs) best follow your work? I'm still out there, believe it or not. But yeah, if you want to find my podcast, that's called Fat Burning Man. And my website is fatburningman.com. We have more than uh, almost 400 episodes there for free with transcriptions and, and all that. And then Fat Burning Man across social media channels or Abel James, A-B-E-L, James. You can usually pull me up, usually. <laughs> but the easiest place to find me is, is definitely going to be fatburningman.com. And then the books are called, as you mentioned, The Wild Diet. Designer babies still get scabies and our other company is called Wild Superfoods. And we've got a new app called the Wild Challenge just about ready to come out. So we've got a lot of spinning plates, but if you want to find us, we're there. I love it. So for listeners, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash wild diet. It's funny, I've been thinking this whole time. So I always put a full transcript in the show notes, but I'm like, hmm, do I need to like edit this transcript so, <laughs> so it doesn't get censored? I was pretty good. Ironically, they usually don't let you talk about censorship or shadow banning. It's like demoted as soon as you say those words. (laughs) But how many words? My my list of words that I'm avoiding is so long at this point that I'm partially giving up. I'm not giving up on the main ones, but like on some of the other ones. Whatever. Time to know what these words are. Yeah. Well, we could talk offline, maybe. (laughs) Off record. All right. Well, oh, wait, sorry. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Every kick in the butt is a step forward. So after a while, not immediately, but after a while, I'm thankful for the the setbacks and the rock bottoms in my life. Like I said, it takes a while. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful for your work, for what you're doing, for absolutely everything. And I look forward to the future and the future platforms. And I'm, I'm sure I'll see you there on those future platforms. Absolutely. We'll keep on trucking. Melanie, thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Abel. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine? Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.